In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Twice, twice a year I usually go to a weekend retreat at an Episcopal convent in New Jersey. At dinner on Friday night, when that weekend begins, there's always the same routine. One of the, the senior nuns comes over and begins to offer um, a long list of instructions on what we should do and not do that weekend. Uh, turn out the lights, uh, no cell phones. Uh, it's the same sort of uh, speech each time. But then it always ends with this incredibly important reminder Please only use one coffee cup. (laughs) Sister Eleanor Francis especially goes on and on. Please only use one cup when you go for tea or coffee. And I think they're imagining that any retreat group, you know, if they went back for several cups of tea or coffee and meals, then they'd be completely out of dishes and there would be nothing there. And so everyone is careful to pick one cup and stick with it. But this takes some doing. And you can watch people on that Friday afternoon or Friday evening sort of study this wall of coffee cups, trying to choose their identity. Because that's what it will be for the next two days. Uh, When there's no talking, it's largely silent, Um, people know you from your coffee mug. And so if you're representing Pax Christi, or uh, Grimaldi Auto Parts in Norristown. Um, this is how people know you. And yes, there has been an All Souls by the Zoo coffee mug there for a few years now. It's wildly popular. I can never drink out of it. Someone else always has it. Through the weekend, you can look and there might be a shelf by a door and you can see a coffee cup and you think, oh, that was Stevens. He must have gone to walk in the woods. And so you begin to associate people with their cup. So it's important which cup one chooses. That's your identity. I was thinking about those coffee mugs and that that dilemma of which one to choose uh, when I read this gospel. In today's gospel, Jesus asks James and John to choose a cup, but choose the right cup. They've already left their former lives. They've They've picked up and followed. They're following Jesus. And then Jesus asks them in this passage, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? These brothers, James and John, nicknamed Sons of Thunder, Thunder Forth, they seem to have been outspoken and always quick with an answer. And so sure enough, here, they're quick with the answer to Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, we're able. In today's gospel, as well as several other places in the gospels, Jesus uses the cup as a symbol. It's an image that holds within it a number of different important things. Um, The cup as a symbol finds its way into several of our stained glass windows. I think in particular one on your left side, about midway. The cup that Jesus drinks from contains suffering. Um, It's layered with service and with sacrifice. But finally, this cup that he talks about, that he drinks from, that he offers us, is a cup that overflows with joy. 
If we think about that cup he speaks of in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's a cup of suffering back there. Jesus prays in agony. His friends are asleep. The authorities are coming. And so Jesus prays to the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Right there in these two phrases, I think we probably have all we ever need to know about prayer. I love that both pieces are there. Notice that in the first piece, Jesus asks for what he wants. He doesn't sort of pretend that he's overly pious before God and jump too early to the thy will be done, Lord. Instead, Jesus asks for what's on his heart. He prays honestly, let this cup pass from me. Jesus doesn't want to go through the suffering that's ahead. He wants another way out. And yet, the second part of that sentence, but not as I will, but as thou wilt, thy will be done, as we repeat in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus models this for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he continues through his acceptance, through his prayer, through the the love that he continues to embody and share with others. Jesus slowly transforms what was a cup of suffering into a cup of redemption. This doesn't always happen. It didn't always happen in Jesus' day. It doesn't always happen in our day. Suffering is not always transformed into redemption. And we need to say that out loud and be aware of it. Suffering in itself is not glorifying to God. Children who die too early, women who die of abuse, the elderly who die alone and afraid, those who live in cultures and communities of violence or warfare, that sort of suffering is pointless. There's no redemption in it, and we blaspheme if we suggest that it's somehow glibly God's will. It is not God's will that people suffer. Instead, it's God's will to redeem, to bring to life, to restore. And we're most faithful when we do everything we can to lift one another out of such suffering. But there is another kind of suffering. There is a a suffering on behalf of others that can have value. It can be of a whole different quality. It's of a different cup altogether, if you will. We hear it in today's first reading as Isaiah sings of a suffering servant in words that we also hear every year on Good Friday. It's easy for us to see Jesus as that suffering servant. The Christian church has seen it that way. Jesus is the one who was born, who has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases by whose bruises we are healed. We can understand it in that light. But the interpretation that Isaiah had, probably, and the interpretation by faithful Jews before Jesus and after, is also relevant to our understanding, I think. You see, Israel understood itself as the suffering servant. Not one person, even the Messiah, but the whole people, the whole nation. As the nation of Israel suffered but remained faithful, The belief was that others would see this faith and be brought to God, be drawn to God through the suffering of a remnant, just a few, then the whole world might be saved. 
We've heard a little bit of this as we've been reading um, Pope Francis's encyclical on the environment. This idea that um, that the few, the few with intention, with faithfulness, with care, with love, can be a kind of leaven for the rest of the world. And so a very few can have a powerful effect on the whole. This is redemptive suffering in community. It may sound strange in our culture that focuses so much on the individual. But if we think about it, it does take us out of ourselves, doesn't it? It invites me to worry less about myself if I'm taking on the burden of another, even for just a little while. It encourages me to think and pray about how we all might be called to take on burdens together. In what ways might we be called as a community, as a nation even, to suffer so that others might know redemption, to give up a little so that others might have more? When Jesus asks James and John if they are able to drink from this cup to accept the challenge, he's asking also if they're able to endure suffering. He's asking if they are willing to live a life of service because Jesus makes it clear that the kingdom of God is not built on power or greatness, but on serving one another. That phrase, one another, comes up again and again in scripture. Someone wrote a book a few years ago entitled simply One Anothering, the essence of the Christian faith. Jesus says, love one another, bear one another's burdens, submit to one another, encourage one another. Over and over again, what is underscored is the relational aspect of our faith. Our faith comes alive when we're able to serve one another, not just in volunteering or being busy or performing appointed tasks, but really in letting down our guard, really allowing other people closer even allowing ourselves to be changed by the other. If you think about it, it's one thing and a good thing to volunteer in a soup kitchen, for instance, to get there early, to work hard, to do one's task and then to leave. But it's quite another to go to the soup kitchen and learn a few names, listen to a few stories, and identify mutual places of weakness and suffering and need. That's sharing a cup in service. And so we continue to share it. We continue to pass it on. At at every Eucharist, we pray that we might be sent into the world to love and to serve God. Well, we accomplish that loving and serving not in the abstract, not in spoken prayers alone, but by loving and serving those made in God's image. Jesus drinks and shares a cup of suffering and a cup of service, but the cup that he lifts highest and offers to all is in the end a cup that's filled with joy and celebration. For lack of a better term, it's a victory cup of the first order. It's beyond any hope of some kind of holy grail because as we share this cup of the blood of Christ, we really drink in everlasting life. Here, together, everywhere that the Holy Eucharist is celebrated. In this gospel where Jesus explains that greatness comes through service and honor comes through sacrifice, 
He also asks if the disciples are really able to undergo a baptism like his, just as Moses led people through water from slavery to freedom, baptism with Jesus leads us in a similar way. It, it submerges us in death, death to sin, death to the powers of the world, death to the demands of the devil. It's a death to self and a death to selfishness. But then we're brought out of a watery death into a new life and baptism changes us and changes everything so that we are made new. We're born again and we're enabled through confession and forgiveness to be born again and again and again. If we choose it, that is. We have a lot of choices. We know that. Too often we begin to choose the right things in life and life is pretty good and we give an occasional nod to God but, but we continue to do our thing. We, we gradually drink in more and more of the world. Before we know it, we're full of ourselves, full of work, full of relationships, full of success, full of goals and plans and schedules. And over time, it's possible to lose one's taste for things holy. And so to sip true religion tastes bitter at first. Austin Ferrer is a theologian who talks about this odd sense of taste, tasting God as God's goodness on our palate, a taste with a new and unthought of flavor, he says. Pharaoh writes, God's goodness, which we taste in wine and in bread, in friendship and in every blessed thing, is the love that died in agony for our salvation. That is where, we taste, that is where the taste of it comes out for us. Yet it is not a bitter taste. It is the wine of everlasting joy. And so it all comes together in this wine of everlasting joy. The suffering, the service, the sacrifice, all poured into one cup, one cup that's shared, one cup that overruns with everlasting joy. Which cup will we choose? Strengthened by the risen Christ, may we choose wisely with faith and with love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.